0: It's a cliche at this point, Jeff, but that doesn't mean it isn't true. It's been a grueling and exhausting few years, and while there's a palpable sense of relief on college campuses as pandemic restrictions have been lifted, things really are starting to feel back to normal.
1: Many things have not jumped back to what was normal pre-pandemic. No question, Michael. And Not only has enrollment in colleges rebounded, it actually continues to decline. And while we've seen firsthand that students are thrilled to be back on campuses, we've also seen that engagement inside and outside the classroom continues to be a challenge for many. Today, Sanjay Sarma of MIT and author of GRASP, The Science of Transforming How We Learn, joins us to help us shed some light on re-engaging students post-pandemic on this episode of Future You. Have you ever had to say to your students, it's in the syllabus? In our new ebook, Dr. Stephanie Spiker shares how you can humanize your syllabus to better connect with and engage your students. Download it today at Course Hero, where faculty share resources to improve student outcomes. Find it at coursehero.com slash future That's coursehero.com slash future in the letter U. I'm Michael Horn and I'm Jeff Selinga. Michael, when we think about re-engaging learners, it's a tricky problem. There are a lot of factors that help explain why so many students just haven't re-engaged with the schools they left, enrolled in the first place, or just drifting through their classes without energy and enthusiasm. To say nothing of the fact that engaging students in classroom learning was hard before the pandemic as well, or that even as many students do return to campus, they're looking for more flexible learning experiences that challenge even the best of faculty and institutions. And Jeff, we've of course touched on many of these factors throughout our
0: shows, but today I'm excited because we get to dive deep into one of the core functions of the university, teaching and learning. I'll also confess the science of learning is one of my favorite areas to dig in and learn about more broadly, get to be a little bit of a nerd in that area. And so I'm excited to dig into both how existing colleges and universities could better stimulate engagement among the learners on their campuses and in their online learning experiences, as well as to think through what a more engaging learning design would look like, period. And to help us with all that, we're welcoming Sanjay Sarma to Future U. He's the head of open learning at MIT and a professor of mechanical engineering there. He's also the author of a new white paper titled, An Affordable New Educational Institution, as well as the book Grasp, The Science Transforming How We Learn.
1: Sanjay, it's good to see you. Welcome to
0: Future
2: U. Jeff, Michael, such a pleasure.
0: So Sanjay, we want to get into a lot of the issues that you raise in your terrific book, Grasp, and your new white paper and call for a new higher educational institution. But first, I actually want to dive into your background because I've, I've known you for many years now. But until I read your book, I actually had no idea that your path into higher ed wasn't at all linear, and in fact included a couple scary encounters along the way, in both in India uh, when you were in your dorm room studying and, and then on an oil rig. So, could you tell us about your story and path to MIT, and ultimately coming to focus so much on scaling great learning experiences?
2: Yeah, no, uh, Michael. I uh, I was uh, in you know I got into IIT, which was sort of a difficult thing to do in uh, in those days, and it's much more difficult now. And once I got in, I was uh, the class uh, clown, and I, was, I had a lot of fun. I you know um, I loved projects. Uh, I, I sort of paid attention in, 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 in lectures, but didn't really. But most importantly, I lost the plot. I didn't understand why I was learning Why I was what I was learning. A lot of scary experiences, including academic, including simians, monkeys, and so on, uh, which I think you're referring to. Um, then I w- went to work on an oil rig just to sort of uh, do something completely different, right? And uh, there, I began to have these um, epiphanies Oh, my God, I understand why fluid flow is important. Oh, my God, I understand why shock, you know, shock is a sort of a thing in fluid mechanics, is important. I understand why controls are important, Why? what an integrator is. And I realized that if I'd only known my four years, four long years at IIT, would have been so much more valuable. And I also realized not only did I know, no one thought to tell me. And, in fact, the people telling me probably didn't know either. So that's how I got into the space, you know.
1: So let's uh, dig a little bit into the, into the book, Sanjay, in grasp before we talk about the, the new white paper. And a lot of listeners uh, to the show will be leaders and faculty at traditional institutions trying to figure out how to better engage their learners. This has obviously been a long time problem, but it certainly got worse during the pandemic. We're reading about it all the time because it doesn't seem to have uh, rebounded by any means. Uh, if we're living in a post-pandemic world, whatever we want to call we're li- what we're living in right now. So let's start perhaps at a high level, because in the book you wrote that learning shouldn't be difficult. What do you mean by that? It, because it seems to perhaps contradict with some other cognitive scientists have written about over the, over the years.
2: Basically, what we say is there are desirable difficulties. Actually, we didn't say that. Uh, uh, Robert Bjork, uh, sorry, uh, uh, Professor Bjork at UCLA said it. And um, the, there are desirable difficulties. It turns out that when you learn, if you can focus the difficulties on the cognitive side, it's actually useful. But we load, we burden education with all sorts of undesirable difficulties. That's point number one: by making it unpalatable, no context, you know, um, not giving students the time to um, to apply their learning, uh, to refresh their learning, uh, you know, cognitive science principles, etc. And um, we're stuck, we're stuck in a loop, you know, it's like Groundhog Day, because we're, you know, we give lectures, and we've, uh, then we grade students, and then we say, oh, the lectures, uh, they didn't pay attention to the lectures, we're sort of stuck in that loop. Um, in fact, as we know, and in fact, the analogy I'll use is that of parents, which is, a- every parent knows that when their child uh, rolls their eyes in the back of the car, right? In the back seat, you can feel it, right? You can feel it in the back of your head. You know to back off and the learning instinct is much closer to that than the lecturing sort of dogma that we've imposed because it's convenient to us, right? And so we have over time become less about transforming the individual. Every parent is a transformer of their child and more about sorting the individuals and saying or winnowing, as we say, you know, picking the winners and the losers because the ones that are more compatible with the system that's convenient for us. And that's a terrible tragedy. So we've got to sort of rethink how we get into the business of transforming the individual, which means engaging individually, which means displacing the lecture, because that's where we waste a lot of time.
1: So how do we practically do that? So how do we, the, the desirable difficulties, as you call them, right? How do we spark that curiosity in students and really prime them for learning and engagement? So okay, let's do away with a lecture. It seems like we have been talking about that for a long time. But what other concrete steps can institutional leaders even take all the way down to
2: individual faculty members? So that's actually a a fairly difficult uh, uh, question to answer only because it's um, a lot, but also, as you know, um, institutional change is difficult. But I'll start with the individual faculty member. If you can put stuff on video, you know, the classical flipped classroom, by the way, just putting your lecture on video and then showing up at the classroom and twiddling your thumbs doesn't solve the problem. What you need <laughs> is a very specific set of activities where the student goes through the aha moment of discovering the context, the um, you know thinking through two or three ways to do it, but figuring out why the right way, well, for example, to solve an equation actually makes sense, m- having the students struggle with it a little bit, um, giving them problems, Um, Right off the bat, it turns out that actually solving problems, which may seem more painful, desirable difficulty, is actually more effective, right? Letting them forget. And then when they're about to forget, reminding them that's, you know, the spacing effect, this, you know, space retrieval, that's another desirable difficulty, Right? Because it turns out your memory isn't gone. The pathway to that memory is the one that um, atrophies first. So, sort of refreshing that pathway. It turns out that there is something in learning called the illusion of learning, which is students, when they think they've learned, they haven't actually learned. The techniques that work, oddly, students feel like they've learned less, but actually they've learned more. You know, it's like my child, you know, our kids, you know, eat your veggies, it's better for you, right? So there's a there's a social contract with the student, all that has to change. And for that, the system has to create the time and the space for faculty to do that.
1: The time and space, I think, is interesting, right? And this idea of 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 the techniques where they might people might think they've learned less, but they've actually learned more. One of these techniques you talked about is, is spacing, of course, the notion that that learning is more effective and long-lasting if we space out the practice. But of course, we have institutions of higher ed that we have, and they're all built around the credit hour, as Michael and I've talked so often on this show about. We have courses, we have semesters, in it, and there's so much pressure now uh, around retention and throughput and getting students through as quickly as possible because it's so damn expensive, and we have to get them out as quickly as possible, right? So are there, are there things that faculty can do to build this idea of spacing into existing classes or those existing structures? I mean, how can you... What are the things you've learned... That could you, where you could change your, even your own practice if you're a faculty
2: member. So uh, there's another goblin sort of hiding in there, and that is the test. I mean, I mean the high-stakes exam, right? The test is a proxy of real learning. By the way, all the bad habits actually are better for test-taking. That's the, that's the real truth. A lot of these long-lasting things, they don't actually help you as much. Cramming is better if you want to take it in. I'm just telling you, Unfortunately. All these longer, sort of more robust, durable learning things actually don't make you as good at the test, but actually serve you better in life. But we don't test for life. So I think what I would do is at the very, um, at the very very minimum, um, do um, flash forward, flashback. Actually, one of my colleagues, at, um, two of my colleagues at MIT did that. So you keep recalling stuff you learned three weeks ago, six weeks ago. Obviously, you run out of time, you know, when you reach the end of the course. But at least to the extent you can, you recall and if we had our druthers, we would give them a, um, a low stakes exam, not a high stakes exam, six months after the course, just to see how much they retain. But we don't want, you know, that might give us some bad news, which we might not like. But actually, the act of giving that test will improve the student's recollection.
0: Super interesting. So, so Sanjay, many educators, myself included, have seen the upheaval caused by the pandemic. As this opportunity to affect broader changes, and you, you've written this new paper with a bunch of colleagues uh, called an Affordable New Higher Education Institution or HEI, as you call it, and we'll link to it uh, in the show notes so that people can check it out. Uh, but you wrote in it that quote, "In general, this white paper is not intended as a rethinking of higher education. The opportunities and issues facing higher education are complex, multi-layered, and nuanced rather this is a design exercise with a sharp focus on how a standalone de novo institution can deliver effective affordable undergraduate education and in so doing we hope to capture some of the better features of higher education as it is delivered today while also identifying and perhaps relaxing some of the assumptions and constraints under which existing institutions operate in many ways then so that's the end of the quote but in many ways the call that follows in the paper is a demonstration of how to break the so-called iron triangle of quality, affordability, and access. I, I think you use the term innovation instead in the paper, but it's essentially the same idea. And so I'm just curious, like as you wrote the paper, what did you learn? What should our audience take away from it? And is there anything that they can maybe use in it to innovate
2: in their own schools? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that uh, <clears throat> in many respects, um, so there are structural changes we talk about, for example, going to a trimester system, you know, ba- uh, baking in um, co-ops, rethinking the curriculum uh, rather than, you know, 35 courses, um, sort of generalizing majors and minors and reconstructing the whole curriculum as a bunch of majors and minors with their own credentials attached. So we have a bunch of stuff. But really, what we one of the key things we two two key things related to uh, even grasp uh, the book one is um, because we say don't teach, for example, machine learning in higher ed by itself, teach the math, the history, the sociology, the ethics, the computation together, you get more opportunities to create relevance, to integrate knowledge across fields, and more opportunities to apply the tricks that we talked about, such as space learning. Um, retrieval, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I think one thing that um, I read could do is pair up courses. You know, if you're teaching a course, I'm, I'm an engineer, so I'll use engineering examples. Math and physics, right? Pair them up for God's sake. They are not different worlds. They are supposed to play together. And how often does the math professor talk to the physics professor and say, "Listen, I'm teaching electromagnetics. You just taught you know, uh, differential calculus and you know, and the gradient. And this is how they come together. And the potential function." At the very least, I would say, that has to be something we do. The other thing I'll say is that we give a short shrift to the humanities. You know, the history of how, for example, um, you know, work energy equivalents, Count Rumsford, who by the way is from Massachusetts, and became a count, he fled the country because he actually sided with the British, not with the Minutemen, right? I mean, that's such wonderful history and, and yes, he played a fundamental part because they were milling cannons and they found that when they put work in, it turned to heat. And that's how the work heat equivalence sort of was established. The humanities is a connective tissue that we just ignore. We actually, it's sort of like we tell, uh, we ask people to come to a Michelin restaurant and we say, here's some pepper, here's some uh, uh, sugar, here's some uh, wheat. You know, trust us, if you cooked it all, it'd make a great meal, but this is how we'll serve it to you.
0: <laughs> so it's it struck me in reading uh, the, the, the report, Sanjay, that in many ways, you all have put together the greatest hits of innovation in higher education yes. into a coherent institutional structure. You call what for less, complex, less complexity, clearer purpose around teaching over research, different faculty model, use of technology to drive more active learning, mastery-based learning you have in there, stackable certifications that lead to a degree, learning sequences instead of courses to allow for what you were just talking about, more of that interdisciplinary learning and team teaching. Uh, You talk about new scheduling and altering the use of the academic calendar. You talk about co-ops, greater affordability, lower cost. It's basically all in there, which I loved reading. But you all noted in the paper as well, and there's sort of this thing that you're tantalizing the reader with, or, or, or teasing them almost, that each of you, as the authors, have in fact helped launch new institutions of higher education in the past. And that MIT has been a big player in launching new colleges and universities historically. So I'm curious, like, what should we expect to come out of this? Like, what's your hope for what happens now that you have written the paper? Are you all going to be launching something?
2: Yeah, I mean, so there's certainly interest from donors, both uh, in the U.S. and abroad, to do something new. Um, And this was actually a a project we took took on um, because of that interest. And um, what we want to do is, though, we want to be very deliberate. You know, We didn't write a big editorial on this. We didn't do a TED talk on this. We have this conference coming up, um, uh, and, um, uh, which you'll be in. Uh, Michael, very much look forward to that. And then once that's over, we want this to be an open source or of document where people can sort of comment in the marginalia. But yes, I think that this thing um, may well become something new. It's not an MIT effort. It's just an effort out there in the public domain. That the authors are excited about, but we won't. We welcome everyone else to participate. But this is not specifically an MIT effort. Gotcha. Well, we're,
0: we're going to keep an eye on what you and and your co-authors maybe the individual roles though you play uh, in whatever comes out of this. But but last question, which is, I'm curious as you look out at the landscape about the barriers to launching a new institution like this, and 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 what you see and and what it would take to overcome them. I I'll say in many ways, I confess that when I read it, it felt to me like you maybe were describing 80 percent of Minerva University plus 20 percent of some other things that maybe they should have done when they started. Uh, but I, I, I imagine you want more de novo institutions in general. And so what what's it going to take to get there? And what are the barriers you see that we have to strike down to get to that?
2: Yeah, I mean, look, <clears throat> the um, um, I followed Minerva very closely, um, followed Olin College. In fact, the former president of Olin College is an advisor um, um, and um, uh, so SUTD, which, as you know, I helped establish in Singapore, um, I think that e- um, each of them got about sixty, fifty, seventy percent of it. But you got to—it's like building an arch; you sort of need everything to fit together for the whole story to work. Otherwise, you something—you uh, give up on something, right? You give up on pedagogy, you give up on cost, you give up on scalability, um, um, etc. Um, my view is and the other thing I'll say is that um, if the barriers actually lower internationally believe it or not America is sort of caught up in its own history um, and other other barriers include <clears throat> by the by making this de over, we're also sort of separating ourselves from the legacy of our own histories right so it's new uh, but another barrier is accreditation how do you get this accredited so there's a lot of um, block and tackling and frankly it's the a document like this was a lot of work, but the action that follows is going to be the majority of the innovation. it's the majority of the uh, you know the execution comes down to execution so um I, I by no means am I claiming it's an easy road forward, but I do think there is an opportunity uh, to actually pick up on one aspect that we talk about particularly, which is if you look at ib the intellectual international baccalaureate i b right I mean you have the ib program I think there's an opportunity opportunity to create a sort of a undergraduate uh, education um, version of that where uh, colleges sort of sign up to it um, and it's saved this sort of combined effort, this combined quality control, and this great savings and efficiencies uh, with a new model that you can pull out of it. And we'll be right back on Future You. <laughs>
0: Do you want your course content to be engaging, or do you want it to be pedagogically sound? You probably want both, right? But knowing how to leverage all the teaching tools at your disposal can feel like a never-ending learning curve, especially when it comes to technology. At Course Hero, teachers with diverse backgrounds come together to create rich and engaging learning experiences using online tools and applications. From learning how to create a more engaging syllabus to building a more inclusive curriculum Course Hero is a virtual gathering place for teachers who want to level up their digital pedagogy. Join Course Hero's teaching community where digital innovators and classroom changemakers connect and share actionable insights for the future of education. Create your free account today at coursehero.com educators. Members get access to their faculty newsletter filled with teaching tips from fellow faculty, Ebooks and early bird registration to upcoming events and workshops. Join today at coursehero.com slash educators. That's coursehero.com slash educators. Welcome back to Future You off a conversation with Sanjay Sarma of MIT that is one For me, Jeff, it just never gets old. I I love thinking about what we're learning, about how individuals learn and how we could design better institutions and better learning experiences in our existing institutions to make learning better and hear about the spacing effect, intentional forgetting, and then retrieval, using assessments to drive learning as opposed to something separate from the learning process that creates cramming, desirable difficulties. All, All of that gets me excited. But Jeff, you said something that I want to come back to. And you said, Sanjay... Yes, let's do away with the lecture, but we've been talking about that for ages. Now, a few years ago, Josh Kim and Eddie Maloney made the case in their book that institutions are moving forward to eliminate the lecture, and it's just not recognized as much as it should be. I'm curious because you talk and you visit with a lot of institutions, and the way I've seen it is, of course, this is happening at the margins, but do you see it happening in a big way, or is eliminating the lecture the conversation we still need to have in higher ed before we get into some of the more advanced techniques and tactics
1: that Sanjay spoke to us about? Well, Michael, on the whole, the, the lecture hasn't disappeared. But one thing the massive disruption of the pandemic did do, I think, was force professors to reassess how they design their courses. And that's a good thing, even if it doesn't mean they didn't do with the do away with the lecture per se you know, in talking to faculty members and those who run teaching and learning centers and following a lot of those people on Twitter, at least for now, um, perhaps rethinking the lecture isn't the most critical issue facing teaching and learning right now. Talk to any professor and you'll hear that students aren't as motivated. They don't see a lot of meaning in their work and they aren't always completing their work and they're just not as engaged. And so perhaps the iterative step that faculty are taking right now to rethink their classroom approaches are just more important. You know, Things such as giving students more access to course content. This started, of course, with flipped classrooms and the push toward hybrid and online learning has given students just more time to interact with course content. And that's a, a good thing. Uh, another important thing that's been happening in the last couple of years is just being accepting of late assignments And so-called contract grading, where students see in the syllabus exactly what they need to do to get a specific grade, and then they agree to complete the work based on the grade they seek. And third, programs that are meant to give students, as Sanjay told us, time and space to think, so slowing things down, which also allows students to deal with stress. Robert Talbot, who is a math professor at Grand Valley State University and who I followed on Twitter for years for thoughts on teaching and learning, you know, a couple of weeks ago, he tweeted something about how he switched up his classes so that there's one week of onboarding that's followed by 12 weeks of teaching content. And then the last two weeks are just catch up and reassessment. And so, as he said, the course is basically over at at Thanksgiving. And so there's so many more innovative approaches to teaching and learning that we probably could do a whole show on, Michael. And heck, we probably could do a whole podcast on them. But what I think some of these things show is that there is so much innovation happening in the trenches by other Sanjay Sarmas that are out there. And that leads me, Michael, to go back to the first question that you asked Sanjay about his circuitous path to MIT, because I think listeners might be entertained by those, you know, perhaps undesirable difficulties. Yeah, sure. I'll, Jeff, I'll, I'll do my best to relay it, because
0: the stories in his book, Rasper frankly With the benefit of hindsight, they're hilarious on this point, but it makes it all the more implausible that someone like him ended up at MIT in the first place and helped create the modern RFID tags and standards for commerce around the world to say nothing of the work he's done leading the open learning work at MIT, all all of which for me, I guess, Jeff, makes me wonder about all the other people that were, quote unquote, leaving on the cutting room floor, if you will, because we haven't given them pathways in higher ed to fully develop their potential and make an impact on the world. But Sanjay tells two stories in his book that show you just how perilously close the world came to having missed out on his talents. Now, the first is when he's enrolled as a student at IIT, the Indian Institute of Technology. And for those who don't know, it's like, you know, one of, if not the most prestigious institution in, 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 in India. And he talked about how he became sort of a class clown there. So he flunks this class on controls, which is required for his engineering degree. And that means he has to enroll in summer school. And that means it's monsoon season and there's no air conditioning in his dorms. So it's really hot. And he has his bed by the French doors, and he leaves the doors open at night. And when he wakes up, a a monkey, like a vicious ape, is staring at him right in the face in his bed with its fangs bared at him. Now, he escapes unscarred as the monkey decides to bound off to look for more food in other dorm rooms, it seems. But he uses it as this analogy of just how adrift he was in learning at IIT and how disenchanted and pointless the content all felt to him. Now you then flash forward and they they connect. After he graduates, he actually does not go on to grad school. He goes to work on an oil rig of all places. And it's when he climbs up the ladder of the rigs and he's standing on the platform, he starts to create the actual associations or connections between the things he was supposed to learn all the way back as a student at IIT and why they're now useful to the work he's actually doing. And And all of a sudden, in other words, All those abstract concepts that he didn't understand, they started to become concrete, and he not only recalled them, he actually started to understand them. And then he writes, by the time I stepped off that platform, my brain felt hungry. Actually, to be technical, when I stepped off, it was an icy step on the platform's exterior, and I twisted my knee badly, and then it was back to the mainland for me. And then he writes, I recall that long helicopter ride vividly for two reasons. One, immediately upon donning my protective dry suit and strapping in, I regretted drinking water beforehand. And two, it was on the flight that I realized that I had to go back to school to pursue an academic career. I I needed to learn more and faster. And the big question you're left with in the book is why is this person who is so brilliant, number one, struggling at IIT to begin with as a student, and number two, Why isn't his schooling making the connections to the real world so he can visualize and understand the importance of the equations and concepts that he's learning, but also so that he has these big questions that create the importance for the learning of the knowledge and concepts in the first place, Jeff.
1: Michael, I think those stories, and I was a little bit behind on reading the book compared to you, but I think those stories are so incredible because it shows people that are even as brilliant as he is still want to make those connections as he did and i think that's critical to students in really something we've talked so much often about on this podcast and having a sense of purpose to their education which he he felt of course so so the last question before we wrap up here what what do you make of this new higher ed institution that sanjay sketched out and and we' and, and well by the way we're going to add that paper to the show notes you know where do you think it will go so I'm taken with the paper, Jeff, even as I think we could jokingly say it really is a mashup
0: of all the greatest hits of higher ed uh, innovation that we've seen over the last several decades. You know, are there other innovations that you could conceive of and I guess add to the list? Totally, but I think Sanjay and his co-authors have put them together, and, and what's striking p- perhaps is they are put them together in a really coherent structure. And as we think about, in my opinion, Ideally, having a vibrant marketplace of new higher ed institutions created that focus on student outcomes, learning, career, and all the rest. What I think they've done could and and should inspire not just one, but hopefully many new institutions along this model. I'd love to see philanthropists really get behind that. And my sense is that it won't be Sanjay who starts it based on what he's told us. But I could see him being a founding board member, maybe. And that would be a really big positive thing, I think, Jeff, for higher ed and for humanity.
1: All right. Before we go, we got a new feature on Future You around questions from you, our listeners. We're going to our mailbox brought to you by Coursera, which has helped us source questions for Future You. And this week, we're going to Elizabeth Hendricks from New Mexico State University. She's an assistant professor in the School of Nursing there, who asked a very topical question for this week's episode with Sanjay.
2: Hi, this is Beth Hendricks. I'm a college assistant professor at New Mexico State University. And my question for you is, how do we increase engagement when considering how cell phones have changed our students' attention span? Thank you so much.
1: Now, Michael, you actually wrote an article discouraging blanket cell phone bans in K through 12. So what's your take on this? Well, Jeff, first, I'll say I think it's a very serious issue. And I do think
0: that classrooms and the faculty members themselves ought to have the ability to say no cell phones in class. But I also think that, as with all technologies, certain classrooms may actually want to leverage the phones for good. And so I think there's a twofold approach here. One under the uh, banner of, if you can't beat them, join them. I am really, really intrigued with all the useful mobile learning apps that have come out for learners in higher ed in the workforce that take the principles of active learning and leverage them to create a very sticky and engaging experience. So you look at like a Duolingo, for example, or or the Quantic School of Business and Technology, which is an entirely new accredited higher ed institution built on a mobile platform. Or or Learn to Win, which initially worked with college and pro sports teams to help players better learn learn the playbooks, but then increasingly is working with the military and companies on training. And full disclosure, I'm an advisor to both Learn to Win and Quantic, but I think we can leverage that type of active learning pedagogy, which is something else we have a lot of evidence about its effectiveness, for students to be answering questions constantly, like literally every eight seconds in the case of those apps, as they learn really how to do the hard work of learning. So breaking things down and chunking them has a real value on, the, on, on one hand. On the other hand, I also think certain things require a lot more time and patience to either work through tricky questions or to say, you know, Jeff, we both write. We like large uninterrupted blocks of time where we can really wrestle with thoughts and structure and so forth. And so, yes, you know, there's rapid response in some part of your learning, but I think having students work on things for long periods of time is important. And I, I there I think we can help give learners far more strategies on how to engage in in deep work and build their capacity for it over the course of, say, a four-year program. But let's not assume that they have that capacity from the get-go, given their desire for instantaneous information, but we have to build it over time in intentional ways. And, And this would be similar, I think, to the example of Florida International, which Sanjay actually cites in his book, about how they created a whole curriculum for their law school students over six semesters to learn about how to learn better.
1: All right, well, that will do it for today. Thank you to Sanjay Sarma for joining us and thank you to Course Hero and Elizabeth Hendricks from New Mexico State University for that question. And thanks to all of you for your feedback, your engagement and listening to the podcast. We'll talk to all of you next time on Future You.